Let me say a quick word of prayer for us. Lord, speak to us today. Open our minds. Give us understanding of your word. And um, towards the end, that you are glorified in our lives. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, after the message last weekend, in which I stated that I believe the Lord is calling this church to be more open to the work of the Holy Spirit, several people indicated to me that they wanted to know just how open we were going to be and just exactly what we were going to be open to. And, uh, you know, that's, those are valid concerns, aren't they? Good, good questions. There's a vast spectrum of opinion in Christianity on how open Christians should be or not be to supernatural phenomena. In my mind, there's like a scale or a spectrum, and there's two vast extremes. Uh, on the far one side, you have those Christians who are completely closed to anything supernatural. In their minds, you know, the, the, the era of miracles and supernatural phenomena was back in the first century, but long about 90 AD when the Bible was completed and the apostles passed off the scene, they believed that was the end of it. And so these are what we call the strict cessationists, completely closed to any supernatural phenomena in this age and anything that they would see or hear about in our day that claims to be that, they would write off as, you know, some kind of crazy phenomena or demonic, maybe even. Then on the far other end of the spectrum are those who are wide open to everything, totally and indiscriminately open. They say the Holy Spirit is still doing all sorts of miraculous stuff today, and they enthusiastically embrace any and all apparently supernatural manifestations, even those that have little or no biblical support or precedent. Nothing is off limits or out of bounds to these folks, barking like dogs, yelping like seals, swooning, writhing around on the floor. All of them signs that you are under the control of the Holy Spirit, these folks would say. The more wild and bizarre and chaotic the church service, the more you know that you're in a spirit-filled church is what they would contend. And so there are these two extremes on the scale of openness. And then there are all points in between. And I imagine that everybody here could probably locate themselves where you would place yourself on that continuum. Like me, I imagine that you would probably bend maybe one way or the other, but maybe not find yourself out on the far extremes. Personally, in my life, I've experienced a little bit of both of these extremes. I've experienced stifling, suffocating, closed-minded cessationism. And I've experienced some wild, bizarre, scary, what I've heard called charismania. In fact, this week I was just thinking back on some of my brushes with that brand of bizarreness. I remember back in 1981, during the summer, I was a college student, and on summer break I was with a group of students selling books for the Southwestern Company. Ever heard of them? They sent us down to Edna, Texas, which I now view as the armpit of the country. Um, not a great place to live in. And, you know, we had no place to live or anything. You're just kind of on your own, and you have to fend for yourself. And so our strategy was to go into a bunch of churches and ask if anybody had rooms to rent or places that we could stay. So on a Sunday night, I made my way to a little Pentecostal church, and they let me make my announcement, looking for some 
you know, place for me and my buddies to stay. And then the worship service started, and the guy got up with a guitar. And I remember he started playing, and he looked right at me in the congregation. And he said, well, brother, I don't know how you guys do it up there in Virginia, but here's how we worship Jesus down here. And he proceeded to lead out in a chorus, which we repeated about 300 times, whipping people up into this frenzy. And I'll never forget it. There was one guy in the front row. I don't know if he's a deacon or whatever. But after about 50 of these repetitions, this guy began to shake uncontrollably right there in his seat. And then he took off in a sprint, still shaking all the way around the perimeter of the building. And then he came back up to where he was and collapsed in a heap on the floor. I didn't know what to think about that. I didn't have any categories for that. And as things kind of progressed... I could see where things were going. I felt so uncomfortable, I couldn't even stay for the entire service. I bolted out the back door of that church, got in the parking lot, took a deep breath, and thanked God that I had escaped. That's how I felt about that at the time. Fast forward about 17 years to 1998. You know, I have a longing and an ache in my heart for more in my Christian experience. I have for many, many years, like many of you. And I had heard that there was a revival taking place down in Brownsville, near Pensacola. And uh, it had actually been going on for about three years by this time. And I just decided I want to see what was going on. So I got on an airplane, went down, and experienced that for about three days. The Brownsville revival, which was gaining international notoriety by that time. And I got to tell you, there were some beautiful, beautiful things about that. I mean, it was like a, a Thursday afternoon, and I'd show up at 2 or 3 o'clock, and there's a line forming outside the church of hundreds of people waiting to get in church that night. Young people, students, older people, people from all over. Some of them were gathered together praying. Some of them were singing songs. All of them had their Bibles, a lot of Christian T-shirts. Hundreds of people lined up to go to a church service on a Thursday night that was going to last three or four hours. It was unbelievable. When they finally opened the doors, you know, people flooded in and people were praying up front around the altar. When they started the worship music, little children went up to the front and were dancing up in the, near the platform. It was beautiful. There was powerful preaching about repentance and salvation and the power of the Holy Spirit. And God was obviously there. Some beautiful things. I also saw some bizarre phenomena that, again, I didn't have any categories for. I remember one lady up and to my left in the middle of worship started barking like a dog. I'm like, whoa, I didn't have any category for that either. Wasn't sure what to do with that. You know, I came away from those exposures, those experiences saying to myself, you know, I do want more in my Christian experience, but not at the cost of becoming unhinged from this book. I came away even more committed to allowing God's word to govern my own level of openness. I wanted to stay tethered to the book and still do. The portion of God's word that we happen to be studying these days speaks directly to this topic, our level of openness to supernatural phenomena. It's my prayer that the Spirit will continue to illuminate our hearts and minds with what He has for us. Well, what we've been seeing in our study of 1 Corinthians is that uh, spiritual gifts have a purpose. And if you want to pull the study guide out of your worship folder, you can follow along with us here. Spiritual gifts have a purpose. 
The Holy Spirit gave them to God's people for a reason. And that reason is to build up the church. Listen to chapter 12, verse 7. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good, to benefit everybody. Chapter 14, verse 5. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be, what? Built up. Edified is the old English word. Strengthened. Verse 12 of chapter 14. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. And in verse 26, a summary statement. Let all things be done for building up. And so it's clear that the Holy Spirit distributes spiritual gifts for the express purpose that believers would use them to strengthen and build up the whole church. This means not only that you need other people in your Christian walk, but that they need you. Around here we say, we need God and we need each other, and others need us. Others need us. Did you know that other people need you if they're going to grow and be strong in their faith? That's what it says. One of our pastors this week told me that he believes that many new lifers are convinced they don't have anything to offer. And that might be one reason why so many of us are not connected in small groups because we feel like, you know, I don't have anything to offer. I don't have anything to contribute. Who's going to benefit from me being there, me being present? I'm not needed. I just want to say that is a lie. That may be the message that you got from people growing up. You're not needed. You're not important. You don't have anything to offer. But it is a lie. The Holy Spirit has gifted each and every one of us and calls us to engage with people and minister our gifts because they need us. Others need you today. Maybe you need to be reminded of that. That's why God gave you that little ache that nagging restlessness that rattles around in your soul that reminds you that you were created for something more, that there's a work that God has ordained for you to do before you were ever born. He's gifted you to do it, and you'll be restless until you are fully engaged in it. The primary purpose of spiritual gifts is to build up the body of Christ. We also see that there's a a secondary result of exercising our spiritual gifts, and that is self-edification. Who would deny that when you're using your gift in a serving role that matches up well, you feel fulfilled? You're thinking, yes, this is what what I was created for. I love this. And instead of being drained and exhausted when you're done, you're like, sign me up again. I'm ready to go. There's a self-edification component of spiritual gifts. That seems to be what Paul is saying in chapter 14, verse 4, when he says, the one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself. Exercising our gifts in the power of the Spirit strengthens us, doesn't it? It strengthens us. Now, I do believe that when self-edification becomes our primary motive for serving, then that can get unhealthy. And that's what was happening in the church at Corinth, and it was getting yucky as a result. Self-edification is a secondary result, not the primary purpose. And so with all of that as a backdrop, let's see what truth God wants to teach us today 
in the passage that we're in, 1 Corinthians 14, beginning with verse 6. Basically, Paul says the same thing, and he comes at it from three different angles. Number one, the gathered church, when the church gathers, assembles for worship, like we are right now, it is built up more through intelligible words than speaking in unknown tongues or languages. Notice verse 6. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, languages, unknown languages, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? You might want to underline prophecy or teaching. We're going to come back to those. If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anybody know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves. If with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anybody know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. Verse 12, so with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. What's he saying? If the whole church is going to be strengthened and built up when it gathers for worship, then truth must be spoken intelligibly so that the hearers can understand what's being said. That's what he's saying. It's got to make sense. For the church to be built up. Notice a few interesting things from this section. Obviously, he's contrasting unintelligible speaking, like speaking in unknown languages, with intelligible, comprehensible speech. That's the contrast in this whole section, really. If you want to build up the church, speak intelligibly so that people can understand. That's what he's saying. And then notice that prophecy and teaching are distinguished from each other in his writing. Wayne Grudem wrote this book. It's called uh, The Gift of Prophecy in the New Testament and Today. I've read this book in preparation for these messages. I highly recommend it to you. He says this, The gifts of prophecy and teaching are always distinguished in the New Testament as different and distinct gifts. He states that while prophecy is the report of a spontaneous revelation from the Holy Spirit then shared with others, teaching consists of repeating and explaining words of Scripture, like I'm doing right now. He says this, If a message is the result of conscious reflection on the text of Scripture and contains interpretation of that text and application to people's lives, the Bible calls that teaching. But if the message is a report of something that God brings spontaneously to someone's mind and then they share it, that's a prophecy. No prophecy in the New Testament churches is ever said to consist of the interpretation and application of a text from the Old Testament. And so I agree with him. I believe that these, although they overlap, they are two distinct gifts, prophecy and teaching. So you can chew on that for a little bit, okay? Now, notice that Paul gives several examples to illustrate his point that things have to make sense to be of benefit to anybody. And the first example is instruments that don't give distinct notes. Now, you know, right, that there is music and there's noise, right? And maybe you have 
teens at home, and you listen to their music, and you're thinking, that's just noise. But I want to remind you of what your parents said to you back when you were a teenager about your music. Kind of the same thing, right? There's music and there's noise. What's the difference? What makes the difference? Well, when notes are played in meaningful order with rhythm and variation and harmony, then it makes sense. Um, Two of my sons are in band and orchestra at their schools, so certain times of the year we find ourselves going to lots of orchestra and band concerts. Sometimes we get there early enough to hear the orchestra tuning up. You ever heard that? So every instrument's playing, you know, these random notes, and it's just this you know, almost irritating cacophony of sound, just random sounds. But then when a skilled orchestra conductor, like our own Mark Kinzer or Kevin Dangle or our own Joan Bra- Joe Brownlee, takes, ascends the podium and commands the attention of all the instrumentalists, and they begin to play notes from sheet music, and it's got order and rhythm, and they're not just random notes, then it becomes symphonic, doesn't it? Then it becomes easy to listen to and beautiful and appreciated and enjoyed. From cacophony to symphony, when notes are played in some sort of pattern or sequence. And so that's what he's saying. It's only then that sounds can really be enjoyed and appreciated. But instruments that don't give any distinct notes, that just play random sounds, give no benefit to the, the listeners. His second illustration is of a military bugler. Back in the day, an army would be roused to battle through a bugle call. And Paul says, well, what if the bugle gives a a random, indistinct sound? How's that going to work for the soldiers? In his commentary, John MacArthur wrote this, hearing a bugle means nothing to a soldier if a definite military call is not being played. Mere notes are meaningless, even if played by the official bugler on the best instrument available. A soldier got no message from a bunch of random notes. He only got ready for battle when call to arms or other such calls were played. And so a bugler would have different calls. But if you just play out a series of random notes, the soldiers wouldn't know. Is it, what does that mean? Is it time to get up? Is it time to eat? Is it time to go to bed? Or is it time to put my armor on and grab my weapon because we're under attack? And so MacArthur writes, we cannot communicate Christian truth through meaningless sounds. Then Paul talks about speaking in a language that is foreign to the listener, not unlike Jono up here earlier speaking to us in Espanol. And those of us non-Spanish speaking people were hoping that there would be an interpretation so we knew what he was saying. Verse 10 There are doubtless many different languages in the world, Paul wrote. By the way, we did some research. There's about 6,800 different known languages in the world right now. Did you know that? That's a lot. And none of them is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker a foreigner to me. If Jono had not interpreted what he said in Spanish to the rest of us, that would have been meaningless gibberish to those of us who don't speak Spanish. And that's what Paul's saying. By the way, of those 6,800 known languages, the Bible has been translated into about 3,000 of the 6,800 languages. So there's still work to do. And we thank God for Wycliffe Associates and other ministries whose stated objective is to translate God's word into every 
known language on the planet. Verse 12, so with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. What's his point? If the church is going to be built up when we gather together, what's said has to make sense. It has to be intelligible. It has to be able to be comprehended. Second, same point, coming at it from a different angle. The church gathered for worship, like we are right now, is built up not primarily through being amazed by incomprehensible speaking, but by comprehending and affirming truth. The church is built up, he's saying in essence, not by the wow, but by the amen. Verse 13, therefore, one who speaks in a tongue, an unknown language, should pray for the power to interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, listen now, if you give thanks with your spirit, in tongues is the idea, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you're saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. Oh, there's some good stuff here. Let's grasp a couple truths. First, for tongues to be beneficial in a church gathering, they must be interpreted. That's what he's saying. If anybody's going to be built up, strengthened, edified, encouraged, they've got to be interpreted. Second, notice that Paul contrasts two kinds of praying. Do you see it? Praying in my spirit and praying in my mind. He's holding those out and he's contrasting them. Praying with my spirit and praying with my mind. Praying with my spirit, obviously from the context, is praying in tongues. Praying in an unknown language. Exercising the devotional gift of tongues. This is a kind of praying that expresses sounds and syllables to God that the mind doesn't comprehend. It says my mind is unfruitful when I'm praying this way. But God does. Of course, God understands all languages, right? So God does. Now, last week in my admittedly unscientific survey, I asked how many of you would be willing to let me know that you believe you've been given the gift of tongues, and about 30 of you indicated that you believe you've been given this gift, this ability, especially this devotional expression of tongues, to pray to God or sing or praise God in an unknown language. It's unknown to you. And yet you feel when you do that you connect with God and commune with your creator on a deep, deep level. Paul says, I will pray with my spirit. He also said, I will pray with my mind. That refers to prayer that's offered to God in the language of the one who's praying such that their mind comprehends the words that they're speaking. Now, notice that Paul states that he possessed the gift of tongues, that he prayed in tongues, and that he sang praise in tongues. In verse 18, we're going to see that he says, I thank God I speak in tongues more than all of you. So we're given this glimpse into the apostle himself and one of his many gifts. He also states that he can control how he prays. Whether he prays in tongues or whether he prays in his native language, he can control it. 
Verse 15, what am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I'll sing praise with my mind also. What's he saying? I can control this. This doesn't just come over me and overwhelm me to where I don't have any control over it. That's important. Because what he's saying, it's inferred that when Paul is worshiping with other believers, with other people, he's going to pray and sing praise with his mind for the benefit of those who are present, who are around in ways that make sense to him and to other people. This is important because Paul wants believers to engage with each other when we come together to worship. This is good. Okay, listen. Verse 15, what am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I'll sing praise with my spirit, but I'll sing praise with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit... Okay, you're here, you're worshiping Jesus, and you start expressing things with your spirit, i.e. in tongues, that no one around you understands. How can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he doesn't know what you're saying? Now, there's some assumptions here that Paul's making. He's assuming that in a worship gathering like this, gifted and ungifted people are going to be side by side in worship. You might be sitting next to someone who believes they have the gift of speaking in tongues and you don't. He said that's, he assumes that, that that's happening in a worship gathering. Gifted people will be worshiping alongside ungifted people in the church. He also assumes that believers' verbal expressions of thanks to God should be intelligible to other people. If you say something or sing something or pray something, the people around you ought to be able to understand what you're saying or praying or singing. He assumes that. And he assumes that people will be saying amen to what you are praying or to what you are singing or to what you are preaching. He's assuming that, that others should say amen. You say, who is the outsider here that he's talking about? Well, it's really anybody who does not understand the language that is being spoken by the individual. They are an outsider to that person. We should be agreeing and affirming what we're hearing from each other in worship. Now, let me say a few words about the beauty and the benefit of saying amen. In fact, would you just say amen? Amen. Amen. Amen Amen was originally a Hebrew word, amen, that Paul took and he inserted it into the Greek culture in which he lived He did not translate it. He transliterated it. It was still pronounced amen. And it means, yes, so be it. I agree. May it be so. That's what amen means. Today, amen, with slight variations in how it's pronounced, is a universal Christian exclamation of yes, I agree. I was in India last fall, fall of 09. And you know, over there, when they hear truth, they say, amen. It's universal, spoken by Christians all over the world. We agree. That's what we believe. Now, notice the way that amen is used in the scriptures to affirm positive and negative declarations of truth. For example, from the law, Deuteronomy 27, cursed be anyone who dishonors his father or his mother and all the people shall say, amen. 
especially all the fathers and mothers. <laughs> Nehemiah 8.6. And Ezra, spiritual leader, blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. So you, here you have a spiritual leader blessing God, praising God, and the people who heard him are saying, Amen! Yes! Yes, God is great! We agree with that, don't we? Amen! Psalm 106.48, the psalmist writes, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, and let all the people say, Amen! I love Romans 11.36. I love it. Paul wrote this doxology. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. I can just see Paul. He's writing this. You know, this is coming. The Spirit of God is giving him Scripture, and he's writing it. And he looks at it, and he goes, that's good stuff. Amen. Sometimes preachers will have this experience. You know, you say something that came from nowhere, and it glorifies God. And you go, man, that was good. Amen. Amen to that. 2 Corinthians 1.20, for all the promises of God find their yes in him, Jesus. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. You know what? One way of glorifying God is to say amen. When you hear truth that resonates with something deep in you, or when you sing lyrics resonate deep in your heart and you agree you go amen amen that glorifies god especially when the people around you can hear it and understand it revelation twenty two twenty. he who testifies to these things says surely i am coming soon and then john writes this postscript amen come lord jesus yes come I agree. I'm all in. In fact, the very last verse of your Bible, the very last word of your Bible is amen. Yes. So be it. I agree. You see, Paul assumes that believers will be saying amen to expressions of truth and praise that they hear and understand. I was deeply struck by what John Piper wrote about this. Listen. It is not God's intent that Christians come to the worship gathering, observe all that takes place, then walk out the door and get into their car without anybody else knowing if anything that person heard resonated with them deeply. Did you get that? It is not God's intent that you come to church every week, sit here in a seat, sing a few songs, listen to a sermon, walk out to your car, and no one around you ever heard you say amen to anything, and they're left wondering, did did anything resonate with that person at all? You see, we're not a collection of individuals all coming here and then going out. We're knit together in a community, a body of believers called the church. And when things are declared or sung about or prayed that we agree with, we look at each other and go, amen, amen. We believe that, don't we? Amen. I grew up on the West Coast in a church where I heard a few amens every now and then. Then I traveled across country to Virginia, where everybody goes to church, and everybody says amen. 
And I heard all different kinds of amens in church in Virginia. There's all kinds of amens. You know, there's, there's amen. And there's amen. I mean, I heard some of those. Amen. We've had some great ameners here over the years at New Life. There was a, one brother named Johnny Simpson who's now saying amen in heaven. He's with the Lord. But he used to always say, amen. Amen. He'd say it a dozen times during a service. Amen. And as he got older, his timing was off a little bit. So sometimes he'd say it like at times that weren't that great, like, everybody's going to hell. Amen. Amen. Maybe not the best time to say that. Our saying or whispering amen to what is sung, what is prayed, what is spoken from God's word testifies to our participation in the life of God together. So the question I want you to ask yourself when you leave today is, did I say amen to anything? Did anything resound deeply in my spirit and resonate with me to the point where I said, amen, yes, that's what I believe. I agree with that. To where the people around you nod their head and say, he believes it, (laughs) she believes it. Based on this passage and other scriptures, I would like to encourage all of us to say amen or even whisper it when something is said or sung or prayed or spoken that is true and you agree with it. I'm not trying to legislate this. I'm just hoping that now that we understand it better, we will see how our verbal responses encourage and strengthen each other and testify to those around us that we enjoy participating in the life of God. I was here last night with our Saturday night crowd, who hardly ever says amen. And they were saying, amen, amen. It's like, whoa, amen. Did you know, well, down south they used to say this, you know, saying amen to a preacher is like saying sick em to a dog. <laughs> and so here's the deal. If you think the preaching is not that great, amen better, okay? You can have an impact on the preaching here in this church by saying amen. Honestly, you can. And at nine, some some lady in the back said, amen. It's like, okay, we can get better, we know that. Amen. Number three, praying and praising God in tongues is not bad. But in the worship gathering, if there's no interpretation, the church is not built up. Verse 18, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Get this glimpse into Paul. It's the only place we're really told this. Paul viewed this as a wonderful gift. He said, I got the gift of tongues. Earlier, I think it was verse 5 or 6, he said, I wish all of you spoke in tongues. Now, Paul knew that the Holy Spirit sovereignly distributes gifts. But he said, I, you know, basically, he was saying, I get so much enjoyment and closeness to God out of my gift, I wish you all could have it. Just like he said back in chapter 7, I wish all of you were single like me, knowing that not everybody was going to be single. I speak with tongues more than all of you. 
Verse 19, nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Wow. That's quite a ratio, isn't it? In this setting, it is better to speak five intelligible words with your mind that others understand than 10,000 words in a language that others don't understand. That's a 2,000 to 1 ratio. And really, the Greek word that Paul used here could mean 10,000, or it could refer to an infinite number. 10,000 was the largest number for which the Greek language had a word. And the word in Greek is myrias, which is very close to our word myriad. And so here's what he's saying. I'd rather speak five intelligible words in church than a myriad of words in a language that nobody understands. Why? Because the purpose of spiritual gifts is to edify, to build up, to encourage and strengthen the whole church. Therefore, it's got to make sense. It's got to be intelligible. That's his whole point. Now, to finish up, I'd like to go back to that first question I started with, the question of openness to spiritual manifestations. How open should we be? What should spiritual openness look like for New Life Church? Let me, let me say a couple things to you. First, I believe that our openness to spiritual manifestations should be guided and limited by the Word of God. I really do. If we believe in truth, if we believe in objective prophecy, like we talked about last week, the very word of God communicated to us in written form, universally authoritative, divinely inspired, inerrant, if we believe in objective prophecy, then we need to let this book guide and govern and limit our openness to that which this book supports and condones. You've got to start there. Personally, I am seeking to be more open because I don't want to miss what God might have for me or for us due to my fears or my pride. I want to be more open. But I'm reluctant to be open to manifestations that I don't see in God's Word. For example, if in this worship service someone stood up or during the musical worship time, someone stood up and started barking like a dog, claiming to be under the control of the Holy Spirit, let's just all agree that we don't see that manifestation of spiritual control in the Bible. We don't see it there. No one's going to be able to say amen to canine tongues. No one's going to be able to say, yes, I agree, I affirm that. It would not build up this body. It would be confusing and chaotic. It would go against everything Paul just told us about in terms of speaking being intelligible and understandable and comprehensible. It wouldn't make sense to us. So if that were to happen, I think that what I would do would be to instruct our ushers in English and maybe the people seated around that person or standing around them, to kindly ask them to refrain and limit themselves in the assembly of believers from exercising 
that expression and to limit it to their private practice. And then in an offline conversation with them personally, I would challenge them to support that manifestation from the Bible. And if they are not able to do that, I would encourage them to seek manifestations that are clearly identified and supported in the Word of God. We must let the Word of God govern and define and limit what we're open to. Otherwise, there's all kinds of manifestations out there, not all of the Holy Spirit. Some people have asked me, you know, what, what are you hoping to see coming out of this study of 1 Corinthians 14? You've said, you know, if the Lord wants to alter or change how new life worships him through this chapter, what, what could that look like? Well, I don't know everything for sure, but I know there are several things that I would love to see come out of this. One, I would love to see anointed, gifted, prophetic intercessors identified and formed and gathered into a team so that when we finish our times together here on weekends, they come up front and you come and you can have those folks pray over you in an anointed fashion and seek God on your behalf for powerful, transformational, life change ministry. I would love to see that. Something we've given a run at a couple times and it just hasn't caught on here yet. I'd love to see it happen. Mature and gifted people I'm talking about. I'd love to see openness, greater openness in small groups to group members with prophetic gifts sharing spiritual messages with the other group members. Pastor Jay and I are in total agreement on this, that, that small groups are really the ideal setting for messages from God to be shared with each other. And this is, again, this is not, you know, thus saith the Lord, and I quote. Not that. This is, hey, guys, I've been sensing that the Lord might be having us move in this direction or go this way, or he might want to encourage us or challenge us with this word or this message. And then in that setting, as we'll learn later on in 1 Corinthians 14, that prophecy, that word, that message needs to be tested and sifted and judged by the people who are there. That's what it's going to say. We're going to find that out. And so in the small group setting, there's already relationships there. And so, you know, the people might hear that word and go, Man, that's just, that's in line with Scripture. It resonates deeply in our hearts. Yes, amen, this is what the Lord wants us to do. This is what he's calling us to, absolutely. And they take it to heart. Or they say, Buford, sit down. <laughs> that's, that's not the Lord's word to us. We, you know, we know you. We know what's going on. By the way, the results, again, from my little impromptu survey last week indicated that about 50 of you, nearly 4% of our church, indicated they believe they've been given this gift of prophecy. They hear things from God meant to be shared with others. It's my hope and prayer the Lord will distribute this gift among us as he see fits, and those who've been hiding it, who've never been urged to develop it, will feel encouraged to do so, and will begin exercising that gift in love, always in agape love. Another thing I'd love to see come out of this is there may be occasions when someone who believes they have prophetic gifts believe they have a word from God for our whole church, for our whole congregation. That, that might happen. That poses some logistical challenges because we're, we're a mid-sized church. We're not at like a house church. 
So here's what I would propose in that case, and I've heard other churches doing this, and it, it sounds right to me. If someone comes forward and says, I have a word from God for, the, for New Life Church, the whole congregation, we're going to say, write it down. Put words to it, write it down, send it to me in an email, and I will send it to our elders. They'll be the ones to test and sift this proposed word from God. And if the elders read it and are, in, are united in saying, yes, that this has the ring of truth to it, it lines up with scriptures, we believe this is a word from the Lord, then we will read it to the whole church. Or have you read it if you're a credible person? So that the whole church can go, yes, that's, that's from the Lord to us. Let's take that to heart. If the elders decide this doesn't really bear the, the marks of authenticity, it doesn't sound like it's from the Lord to us, it doesn't seem like this is legitimate, then we will take that piece of paper and put it in an appropriately marked file folder and you'll never hear it because it needs to be sifted and tested first. Let's just pray that the Lord leads us as a church onto this journey and takes us where he wants us to go. Let's pray that the Lord will give us all the gifts that he wants this body to possess and to express. And let's especially pray that he will be glorified mightily through everything we say and do as his followers. Amen? Amen. Would you stand with me? And I'm going to ask you to hold hands. Grasp the hand of the people next to you, and I just want to pray over us, and then we're going to express our hearts in worship to the Lord, okay? Lord Jesus, you are the chief shepherd of this church, not only your church worldwide, but this church. You are the chief shepherd, the senior pastor of this church. (laughs) Lead us, we pray. Through your spirit, give and distribute all the gifts that you want this body of believers to have and to express. May we not be guided by our fears and our notions that we've been brought up with, things that got pounded into our heads years ago. May we not live in fear. May we not view each other with suspicion. Lord, these are not marks of agape love. Lead us into the full expression of what you have for this church within the bounds and guidelines of your holy word. May we never become unhinged, untethered from the word of God. Your word, Lord. May agape flood our hearts and souls. Yes, amen. May agape love flood our hearts and souls, God. Have your way. Bring great glory to yourself. Receive our worship now, Lord. May we lift hands and bow down and shout and say amen and do all the things that your word gives us as expressions of agreement. For you are holy. And